I mean, it's basically dead silent. And you could probably hear a, a gopher fart from a hundred yards. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, you have to be just dead quiet. Welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast, and thank you for tuning in today. This is episode number 235, and we are continuing in the series, How to Hunt Mule Deer. Our guest today is South Cox, and we take a deep dive look at stalking mule deer. So once you've scouted and have a buck located, as we've talked about in previous episodes, how do you make a move? In this episode, we're speaking from an archery perspective, but it obviously can relate to covering the distance with a rifle as well. South is a very experienced mule deer hunter in the high country, using both compound as well as traditional archery equipment. South has a wealth of knowledge and experience to share from lessons that he has learned chasing high country bucks, and this is truly a treat to have this conversation and take this deep dive look at how to stalk in close on mule deer with South. Before we get into that, I wanted to thank Jeff Straup for the review in iTunes, Jeff, we want to send you some Exo Mountain Gear and Hunt Backcountry podcast swag, so send us your shipping address to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Listeners, it's really simple. If you want to enter into these giveaways, just give us your feedback. You can leave a review in iTunes or another podcast platform that you use, or you can also contact us directly with questions, comments, or suggestions to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We truly appreciate you guys not only tuning in, but also telling a friend about the show and helping spread the word. All right, let's get right into this conversation as we continue our series on how to hunt mule deer and learn how to stalk in close on big mule deer with South Cox. South, most of our listeners are familiar with you, maybe heard the name, maybe know uh, the company or seen videos, but go ahead and just like give guys a quick rundown if uh, they're new and don't quite know who you are, just so we have some context before we dive deep into mule deer here. Sure. So I've been, um, I grew up in Northwestern California, um, up near the Oregon border. I grew up hunting blacktails, uh, and that was a kind of a spot and stalk endeavor up there. Um, I've always been intrigued by spot and stalk hunting. I uh, watched Larry Jones's video hunting open country mule deer back in 1987. I just graduated from high school, and and uh, then the following year went on my first mule deer hunt up in Oregon, and was fortunate enough to to shoot a buck on my first trip out, and really got hooked on on mule deer hunting um in in my opinion they're a lot um they're a lot more conducive for spot and stalking than blacktails are which are kind of more secretive and and uh tend to bed in in thicker cover um so i started hunting nevada colorado and uh which lent, ended up um was the impetus for my move to colorado in 2017 was just um specifically for mule deer um i've been i hunted with a compound you know originally i with dabbling and trad along the way um did that for i don't know two and a half decades or so and and then uh in what 2007 i bought stalker stick bows 
um, started building recurve bows in 2008, pretty much started hunting almost exclusively with a stick bow and, and, uh, dropped the compound, you know, in the next couple of years and been doing it with a stick bow ever since. And, um, really at first thought that, um, I was going to be eating a lot of veggie burgers, um, <laughs> but have have managed to to stay successful. You know, still employing spot and stock tactics with you know a few changes, um, but largely using the same techniques. Just um, you know, in, in general, kind of exercising a little more patience. And um, if people are interested in seeing kind of what. Um, you know, what I do, um, you can see it, uh, looking at, um, YouTube on the stalker stick Bows channel. Uh, then I have got quite a few video or quite a few, uh, yeah, videos up there. And then I've also done a couple of DVDs that are available on the stalker stick Bows store that, um, each one of them have five, you know, backcountry hunts that were successful. And I pretty much hunted the wilderness exclusively, um, since I was in my, uh, late teens. Um, and just, I mean, the, really the, you know, you could go hunt the desert country and, and probably find bigger bucks anymore than you could up in the mountains. But I just love that Alpine scenery. And part of the experience for me is that, you know, that pack in and the, the whole, um, camping and, and backcountry experience is just so important to me and more important than, you know, that the inches of antlers that I may end up with at the end of the day. Yeah, I yeah. couldn't agree more with that statement. Yeah, for sure. So we want to, like in this episode, really just dive deep into stalking mule deer and, you know, basically A to Z from spotting a buck to judging whether they're in a stockable position or how you plan a stock and how you execute a stock and really just like all the little details along the way. Um, you know, we reached out to... Um, our social audience to kind of see what questions they had. So we're integrating a lot of listener questions about stalking mule deer into it. Before we dive into it though, one question that came up that isn't stalking specific, um, but it's just, it, this question comes up over and over and over again, whether it's mule deer, elk, etc., just has to do with picking camp spots in relation to where you think animals are or will be, or your glassing point is, etc. So before we dive into the stalking, I just want to hit that one real quick and just get your take on it. Basically, you know, to read one of the questions verbatim was, what is the safe distance to camp from the basin you want to glass the following morning? So as you mentioned, you're in the Alpine environment, you are backpacking in. So how do you look at picking, you know, camp spots in relation to glassing spots? So I like to camp as close as possible to where I'm going to be glassing the next morning without blowing out the basin that uh, or canyon that I plan on hunting. So generally that involves putting a ridge between the, that place and, and uh, where I'm going to camp. And you have to keep in mind wind direction, prevailing wind direction. You, you know, not a bad idea to look at weather forecasts and if there's going to be a wind switch. Because um, if you're camping like right over the lip of a ridge and then in the middle of the night, the wind all of a sudden starts blowing up out of the canyon you're camped at and it's, you know, carrying your scent over the ridge into the canyon or basin that you want to be hunting, that's obviously not in your best interest. Um, so, you know, usually it's a major ridge and I try not to camp, you know, up right near the top just to help minimize that, um, that chance of that happening. 
Um, but you know, I, I like to, to camp as close as I can. And usually that involves, you know, a few hundred foot climb in the morning, um, just to make sure that I've got a sufficient land buffer between myself and the basin or Canyon that I plan on hunting. Um, I have camped, you know, maybe a couple hundred yards around the corner, but almost similar elevation. And, and I've had pretty good luck there. And it all, a lot of it too, depends on the size of the, the basin or Canyon that you're going to be hunting. Cause you get a massive Canyon. Um, then, uh, you know, by the time that your wind is carried around the corner, um, and then enters that Canyon, it's going to disperse a lot and, you know, breaking your scent into, really small parts per million and maybe a deer ends up picking up your scent um you know but you know if you're looking at across the canyon a half mile across or or so then i i am a little bit less concerned about a situation like that than if i'm you know popping over the uh, over the uh ridge there and then i'm glassing you know directly below me and what that the repercussions of an animal smelling me in a situation like that yeah, I was going to ask that question. What was there a, a distance you've ever noticed that is too close for a deer to pit, to pick up your scent and they they bust out? You know, say you're below at the bottom of a a draw and the deer's 800 yards above you. Have you seen them scent you in that scenario? Yeah, um, you know, a lot of that just depends on wind direction. I I was right. camping on a ridge in in Nevada um, one particular time that I that I remember specifically, and I knew that there were bucks in this basin right below me, and it wasn't that you know far below me. We're talking three four hundred yards um, that I expected to see deer, but the only flat spot I could find was literally on the top of that ridge. And the, I had good wind when I went to bed, but in the middle of the night, like I you know, was alluding to earlier, it switched and, and was blowing down into that basin um, during the middle of the night. And, and that next morning, man, there was nothing in there. Um, and so that really taught me a hard lesson that, mm-hmm. you know, I would have been way better off to, to have hiked a quarter, half mile back down the ridge line and found a different spot and had to commute a little further the next morning. So I think it's always better to err on the conservative side, particularly, you know, when, if you have more limited opportunities in the area that you're going to be hunting. Makes sense. Have you noticed anything just, you talk about winds changing through the night, you know, there's obviously talk of thermals and a a typical pattern of what wind does during the day with thermals, but any, any consistencies or like insights you've gained to wind behavior through the night that's that you try and feel like you can understand or predict. Man, the mountains can be, and even varying from mountain range to mountain range, or even you know different spots along um, a mountain range. I I um, I went on a elk hunt a couple of years ago. Um, it wasn't too terribly far, by the way, the crow flies from a from an area I've hunted mule deer in before, and the mule deer spot that I hunt I've hunted has pretty consistent thermals um and wind you know winds and like i said not too many miles away um the elk spot i hunted it was like some of the worst wind that i've ever experienced where it was just constantly shifting and blowing from different directions and it and it wasn't like that for you know a day or two it was consistent throughout the week and i talked to other guys that had um that had hunted in that same you know general vicinity that year 
um, and had been in there longer than me, and it said that they were experiencing the same thing. And and uh, man, when you have winds that are so shifty like that, and it could just be the topography, you know, in that part of that mountain range, but it almost, you know, you almost need to exit off the map, even if the animals are in there. It's like you know, if you see them, but you can't get to them, and that's, you know, from year to year or something that's consistent, then it, there's really no reason to be even trying. You're just going to be chasing your tail. Yeah, got it. Yeah, I, I've seen, you know, I've seen, um, like, storm fronts, compl- you know, storm coming in, weather system change completely change the way um you know, you know, a thermal system will work. The area that I hunt in Nevada, I remember one year in particular, I had four days, the first four days of the hunt that the winds were just like shifting all over the, all over the place. And, and it had to have been, you know, a, a low pressure system or, or something to that effect. Um, because the, then after that four days, uh, you know, once the things stabilized, it was back to normal and uh, had relatively reliable winds. So, I think a lot of it just depends on what's going on with with the weather, um, and you know, of course, the topography can channel the wind in different directions as well. I think it's hard to make an overall generalization, though. Right, for sure. Yep. So let's yeah, let's hit stalking now and, and begin to dive deep here. Um, Before we dive into that, Mark, I I think one thing that is really important to consider um, before you even you know, step foot on, uh, you know, out of your vehicle is, is to pick an area that is conducive to stalking. So Mm -hmm. like there, there's obviously throughout the Western United States, there's a ton of mule deer country, but there is a lot of country that I won't even consider hunting because, you know, I'm not going to go hunt mule deer in the timber, for instance, it's just not going to stack the deck in my favor. I'm looking for alpine country i'm looking for more you know kind of open country um really flat bald hills are i'm going to avoid that kind of terrain you know if that's what the country is predominantly made up of then i'm going to skip it and move on even if there are deer there because what i'm looking for is micro terrain um and uh just so you know with that kind of background in mind um, before you even start hunting, that's what I'm, I'm looking for is, is uh, a country that's broken up that is going to provide me cover. Mm-hmm. And then are you, you're making those assessments, you know, say you are looking at maps just based on topography, topo lines, you know, and reading it from that perspective. And then obviously looking at, you know, maybe some sat imagery for cover, that type of thing. Yeah, um, that that would definitely be w- was would get you you know a long ways um, in the beginning there. Um, a lot of those terrain features can be hard to pick up unless you actually have boots on the ground, and so you know that's why when like when I find an area or when I've been clued in on an area that I will tend to focus on hunting that particular spot until it's either burned out or um you know so i'm hunting it for a period of years rather than bouncing around and i'm not one of those guys i love seeing new country but i also realize that the longer that i hunt a particular area the better i get to know it then the further 
um, the, my chances of success are because I, you know, I get to know animals' habits. I, I know where they're bedding typically. I know approach routes that work, et cetera. How do you balance that with, because like, it sounds like you're essentially picking country based off of, um, you know, terrain and what that get, what opportunity that gives you for stalking. How do you balance that with what type of animal activity you're seeing there? So you could look at that from either, you know, a quantity perspective in terms of how many, how dense is the population here? You could look at that from a quality perspective on, on trophy, but um, I'd imagine for you, it's, it's partially both. You're looking for the country and obviously you're looking for the deer to be in that country. But as you said, there's places with bigger bucks or more bucks that you just, you're not interested in hunting for your, your style, if you will. Right. Yeah. Uh, you know, personally, um, I'm not uh, a Randy Ulmer that's looking for the top end of the population. Um, and I mean, there's, I, I'm not, I would love to shoot 200 inch or 180 you know inch bucks consistently. Um, but it's more important for me to have a lot of opportunities than it is to, you know, to see the odd massive buck and then know that I only going to have one crack at him and know that there's only one deer in that, you know, in my area that is the quality that I'm after. So I'm looking for units that, that have, um, good, you know, good, uh, favorable topography and that micro topography I was talking about, um, as well as a high deer population. Um, because particularly with the stick bow, I need lots of opportunities more so than big bucks that may, you know, that I can sit on and, and wait for, you know, a week for them to be in the perfect situation or the most ideal situation. And then, only have that opportunity it might take me a handful of tries to close the deal so it's important that i'm getting you know multiple stocking opportunities throughout the week and and uh if i was looking for you know 180 class bucks the, the reality is is that there's you know very few areas that are going to give you multiple stock opportunities on 180 class bucks a week so i just you know if i get a chance to stock a buck of that size by all means i'm going after him but i'm going to be happy you know stocking a 150 160 as well or you know that's kind of my target you know and if i get a chance at a bigger one then then i'm gonna go for it yeah this is probably skipping ahead to some of the aspects of the stock that we'll talk about but i'm curious as you talk about needing you know opportunities and and all that what for you personally what do you find that blows an opportunity more often than not wind Wind. (laughs) wind's going to be the first thing yeah um which you know you can minimize that um well it goes back to you know the the mountains the the area that you're hunting and whether that wind is going to be consistent so sometimes you just don't have a choice you know that if you look at that video that i was talking about um that that i watched with larry jones back in the late eighties. He, it was, it's a fa- fantastic video and, and, uh, I would definitely recommend people dig it up because there's a lot of good knowledge that he, uh, imparts in that video, but he talks a lot about waiting till, you know, one or two o'clock in the afternoon and, uh, waiting till those thermals warm up and, and, uh, really start blowing uphill. Um, and in, you know, maybe in the late eighties, that was more practical, um, advice than, than what it is now. Um, but I find that, um, a lot of times it's more important to make a stock 
when that stock opportunity presents itself and do that right away than it is to wait, you know, for um, that, for those thermals to shift and for that wind to be totally consistent. Because a lot of times those bucks are going to get up and, uh, and move at some point mid morning, you know, when that sun comes around and, and uh, I don't know if the deer have just changed some since, you know, the eighties and maybe they're the mule deer becoming a little bit more secretive as far as, you know, bedding and denser cover than they used to. But I've found that um, I've shot, um, probably more bucks being aggressive and stalking them early when they were, when they initially bedded down and it might've been considered a morning bed, um, than I, than I have by being patient and waiting till, you know, midday when those thermals are blowing a little harder. Hmm. I'm very intrigued by that. Uh, you know, timing and wind and all that are things that we wanted to talk about for sure. So we'll, we'll definitely dive into that. The D- backup South, let's how do you, and you can lead this to you being aggressive and, you know, it, it's hard to talk stalking because there's all different scenarios and variables and what have you. So I'm more yeah. interested in asking, like, what is your process? Like, what are the questions you're asking yourself? But we just can't talk in too many specifics because conditions vary, terrain varies, all that. But to to begin with, you spot a deer how do you tell if that buck is stalkable? So are you picking out a path first? Are you looking at the wind first? Like what are the things you're doing to determine buck sighted in the glass, something I'm interested in, is this buck in a stalkable position? How does that begin for you? Sure. So there, there's a number of, um, of factors that you have to take in. Um, so like, um, and, th- and again, this goes back to hunting, you know, an area year after year, you start to get somewhat familiar with the animal's behaviors. Like I find the mule deer I hunt in Nevada behave a little differently than the mule deer I hunt in Colorado. And, you know, some of that can be attributed to the temperatures that the the deer in, in Nevada um, have to endure versus the, the uh, temperatures in the high country and in Colorado, because I've seen deer in Colorado lay out in a, you know, what I would think of as a morning bed in Nevada where the sun's just hitting them and they're, you know, baking in the sun all day long. But the, the intensity isn't as, you know, it's not as hot, even though it is uncomfortably warm. Um, it's not as bad as if you were laying out in the sun in Nevada. Um, so what I want to determine first is like, what are the chances based on previous experience that that deer is going to be there by the time I'm able to hoof it around and get above them? Um, cause I, I've, I've, I've gone on stocks even in Colorado where I've been duped and it's like, man, that buck, you know, bedded in, in the perfect spot. And I was all but notching my tag even before I left my tripod. Um, and then no sooner do I stand up, get my pack on, then the buck gets up and walks off. And, why that deer, you know, got up and moved off, I don't have an answer for it, but it just, you know, sometimes they'll do that. And then again, you know, the, the same, same canyon, same hillside, I'll see a deer, you know, that, that is laid out in the sun and, and, uh, is, 
laid there for hours and I've been like, okay, I'm not going to go for him. Cause I know when I get half, by the time I get halfway over there, you know, he's going to get up and move. And then I look at my watch and an hour and a half later, and I could have gone over there and got, you know, there in 45 minutes, hour and a half he's, later, he's still laying there. And so mm-hmm. sometimes there's just no rhyme or reason to what they're going to do. And it's an animal and they think independently. So, you know, you, you just don't know. But my my default is if they're in a spot that I think that I can get on them, that I'm going to stalk them rather than second guess on whether they are going to get up and move. Because if they're, you know, chances are if they get up and move, they're going to probably move to, um, to an area that's going to be less conducive than if, you know, when I initially spot them, I think they're in a good spot. So, you know, wind is going to be the first factor. Um, and if that hillside that I'm watching, you know, absent some kind of weather system that's moving in, that's that's creating its own weather or, or, or wind direction, if if uh, that hillside's getting lit up by the sun, I can almost um, be certain that that wind is going to be the thermals are going to be starting to blow uphill. Um, if you have a major canyon. Uh, then that also can create its own wind too. So you might have <clears throat> a uh, like let's say a little basin um, and uh, that's off you know a major canyon that's one of these like kind of hung basins up at the top of a, of a major canyon along the ridge line and uh, and the predominant wind is coming down canyon for some reason. Um, Sometimes you can get wind that's eddying up in those basins that that creates a problem. But for the most part, if the sun's on that hillside, I'm going to assume until I get over there and I'm able to verify it that the the wind is going to be blowing uphill. So I'll start looking at um, my stalking approach between myself and, um, say, 100 yards from the buck. And I'm looking at you know, do I have cover to get to them? How far away am I right now? Because like those bucks in in Colorado, I've um, I've been able to walk within you know plain eyesight four or five hundred yards from them and just move steadily but slowly and not blown them out. Not you know not uh, and I don't even think that they saw me. Um, but just that they're the, the basin is big enough that I'm able to slowly move through the basin and, uh, and, you know, get up elevation above them and then be able to cut around where I'm out of their line of sight. But, um, initially what I, I like to do is try to get out of sight of them, like on the backside of the ridge. And then I'll just hustle as fast as I can jog, run, speed, walk, whatever it is that because I want to close the distance to them as fast as I can so that I'm able to um, lessen that chance that they get up, you know, it being a morning bed without me realizing it and then move off before I'm able to get in position. And I've literally had a number of times when I've gotten just, you know, got to the deer where I'm in shooting range and then had them stand up out of their beds. Um, and so that really kind of underline underscores that importance of closing that distance as fast as you can, um, so that, uh, you know, you can get in on them. And I'm looking for, you know, major terrain features between the deer and I to get in close. And then I'm also looking at, um, that micro topography 
uh, a swell, a little rock outcropping, a single rock, bushes, um, uh, like a dry creek bed or just a dip in the terrain that can help me stay concealed while I'm sneaking up. If I, you know, if there's sagebrush like in Nevada, then I'm looking at um, being able to low crawl uh, you know, to the last point that I possibly can get to them. And how far is that from, you know, from the deer to, uh, to where my, my last point of cover is. Mm. How do you, in terms of leaving the tripod and, and getting there, and you mentioned picking out landmarks, is that all mental? Are you making notes? Are you dropping points on an app? Are you using any tools or that's just all in mind of kind of like planning that path and then keeping an eye on those landmarks? Um, I've got myself lost and screwed up stocks so many times by not doing what you just, you know, talked about there and, and, um, you know, using your phone to take a picture of the terrain and then using the marking tools on your photo editing software is a fantastic way to keep yourself oriented. I used to, um, you know, after having, gone down the wrong ridge or the wrong um, rim rock or any number of mistakes that I've made since that time. Um, you know, originally I started, I'd take out a notepad and I'd draw, you know, snag here and make notes for myself. Um, and now um, then I went to, you know, using a digital camera, taking a picture and then zooming in on it. But now using your phone and being able to use the marking tools, man, it, it is made a huge difference um, just to keep yourself oriented because you you look at something from one perspective and then you move around 90 or 180 degrees um, and everything looks different and and landmarks that you thought you'd be able to pick out as a no-brainer all of a sudden you can't relocate and I mean I've had that continually happen as late as you know last year when i was um when i was elk hunting and in nevada and doing spot and stock stuff and there's like okay yeah there's no way i'm gonna miss that snag and then you get over there and it's like my goodness there's a whole bunch of them that look the same yeah (laughs) when you're glassing and still kind of making the plan you haven't left yet because obviously you have the animal but your goal is to get to a point to put you in a position for the real stock to begin, if you will. So you're probably picking out a landmark of like, I need to get here. And then here's my approach from, you know, this point, right. point A to the buck, point B. Is that always the, a firm point A, if you will? Or are you glassing country and going, well, I could get here or there? Like, do you have multiple kind of routes to the deer picked out? Or does it just depend on the country? Um, I usually have a, a plan A and then will ad lib, you know, on the fly if I need to. So when I get there, if I think that there was a terrain feature that was going to allow me to get in on the deer um, and then I get there and realize that that's non-existent or there's going to be a different obstacle, you know, some other obstacle or maybe that there is an animal, you know, another deer that I didn't see from afar that I pick up or that moved in, you know, while I was stalking, then, you know, I'll, I'll work on a plan B once I get there. But I usually have picked out the route that I want to go on. Um, and typically, you know, my, my go-to default is to try to come up from directly above you know, and working my way downhill because you have gravity working for you then and you're able to to uh, to kind of, you know, slide downhill. If you need to keep a low profile, then uh, usually on a mountain, there's going to be a slight 
roll in the hill and so it aids in staying lower when you have you know when you're able to work that roll of the of the hill in um, your favor there and you have vegetation that's growing up and and that um, also you can use to you know assist in in hiding you and a lot of times mule deer will bed with something to their back and that works great from a stalking perspective um, because it provides a backstop for you that they're not going to be able to see you from that approach from above. Um, but then just as, as um, much as it helps you, then it's going to create a problem when it comes to, you know, trying to get a shot because the body is going to be hidden there as well. So, you know, sometimes that gives you a, a shot distance that's measured in feet rather than in yards. Yeah. There's so many reasons that uphill or approaching from the uphill side makes a lot of sense. You're talking about, you know, I was unaware, I guess, of your strategy of being as aggressive and kind of going when it happens versus, you know, you do hear a lot of guys talking about being patient, waiting for the thermals to settle down, et cetera, et cetera. So do you ever find situations where you, you are aggressive, you're getting them in that maybe that morning bed and the winds haven't then stabilized for that approach from the uphill side? Yeah. I mean, I right off the top, I can think of one example um, and it's on video that I uh, uh, in fact, it was on the full draw film tour. Um, and I want to say it was 2015. Um, I was, uh, I, I had glassed up a buck and actually it was, it was a three or four bucks, but one, um, they had, they had, uh, they were a ways down. I was on the ridge line. There was a, you know, a nice basin, um, right below me and then the basin kind of you know flattened out and then dumped off into the canyon and these bucks were below the the uh, bottom of this basin and they were kind of on a on a slanted face as just as it kind of started to drop off steeper into the canyon um it was probably seven o'clock in the morning um it was on a north uh, north and slightly eastern facing slope, um, and the sun was was popping up. It's kind of more eastern facing slope, I guess. Um, this as the sun was coming up, it was just starting to hit that that face those bucks were on, and it was already you know kind of starting to warm up a little bit. But the wind where I was at, it was still you know that that cold in the morning when you still want to kind of, you know, wear a vest or, or a light jacket. And the wind was, I, I had a big Canyon at my back. I was standing in a saddle and the wind was hitting me in the back. And then it was alternately hitting me in the face, you know, coming up out of the basin. And I, I looked at, I knew that, you know, I had the wind, in the canyon at my back was not going to be an issue once I dropped over the edge because, um, you know, it would be blowing up out of the, the major canyon at my back and carrying out. But um, I figured that there was the warming thermals that were just starting to come out of the, the basin below me were enough that it would, uh, you know, there'd be a lot of turbulence and swirling air, but I was you know, six, 700 yards above these bucks below me. And I knew that, well, I didn't know, but I was willing to gamble that, that the wind where I was at was not going to be the same, 
you know, down below. And these deer were bedded in uh, just a great spot for a stock. Um, they, and I knew it was also a morning bed because they had bedded in the shade, but the, it wasn't going to take very long with that rising sun before that sun swung around and they were going to get blasted by the sunlight. And so I knew it was like one of those situations where, you know, I could sit there and, and watch them get up out of their morning beds and then rebed at some point. But I didn't know where they were going to go, if they were going to stay with, you know, inside of me um, while they went and rebedded, or if when they rebedded, they were going to bed in a spot that was conducive for a stock. So I decided, um, you know, based on past experience and just, you know, decades of, of hunting that that sun hitting that hillside was going to warm the thermals up just enough that I was going to get enough of an uphill breeze to, to give me the, the wind direction I needed once I got down there. So I dropped in that basin and I literally ran through, you know, down the mountain as fast as I could and ran through the bottom of that basin. And during that time, you know, cause I, at that point I dropped into the shade and I literally had the wind blowing from all four points on the compass as I was heading towards the bottom of the basin. Now, once I got down the bottom of the basin and then dropped out of the bottom of that basin, got on that same face that they were on, then I was back in the sunlight again. And the, they're sure enough, just as I thought, and by now it's like seven 30 in the morning. So still really early, I'm getting a really feeble uphill, you know, wind and it would come uphill and then it would die. And then it would, then it would resume that uphill and then it would die. But it was enough that, you know, I had the wind that I needed and the buck that I really wanted, it was a nice four by five and he was bedded literally under the shade of a dead snag, but, um, not at the base of the snag, but, you know, a ways out, um, where the trunk of the snag was, you know, the shadow was laid across the ground. So you can imagine though, as that sun moved around, that's going to, that shadow is going to shift really quickly. So I, I knew that it was imperative that I got to that deer as quickly as I could. And, um, so I got, you know, I don't know, maybe I was 75 or hundred yards. I stopped, took my boots off, uh, put my GoPro on and then hustled down there as quickly as I could. And I had a huge boulder that I was able to use for cover. And I got to about 20 yards from that deer that was still bedded in the shade of that snag and was able to, you know, draw my bow, lean out and then shot him at, you know, broadside, you know, bedded at 20 yards, never had an idea I was there. And I literally had a buck that was, you know, less than 10 yards from me bedded right on the other side of that boulder. Um, and, uh, you know, that was an example, just one of probably quite a few that I could think of where being aggressive paid off for me. In approaches like that, what do you, how, what is your preferred method for keeping tabs on a wind, like a certain wind checker or how do you, how are you doing that? Yeah, I, um, I, I use the, like any of the variations of smoke in the bottle. Mm -hmm. Um, I've got one of those in my front pocket and then I've also got, uh, man, what are those, those wind checkers? It looks like dandelion. It's they come in a little like snuff can and you can pull those out and the wind, the wind powder is, um, is great. I mean, I'm using those constantly and I have a backup in my backpack. Um, and then, but 
the the thing with those is i mean you can you can uh you hit those and you can see what the wind's doing for you know say 10 feet or so um but those wind checkers are really neat because you let those things go and uh particularly if you're near the top of a ridge it's pretty fascinating to see what happens with the wind um as it gets out away from you sometimes they'll just you know blow in a straight line but a lot of times they're doing loop-de-loos and swirling and you know whipping all around where it feels like you have wind going one direction but then you watch that thing for you know 20 yards and it's it's amazing to see what happens you know with the wind once it gets out a little ways from you mm-hmm. what are you doing to you get within 10 yards of deer to, to remain silent when you're stalking. Is so, there, yeah. That- yeah. Everything that I have, every piece of equipment from binocular harness to pants to everything is just got to be as dead silent as I can. So when I'm buying stuff, I'm doing the fingernail test where I gra- take a, my fingernail and I scratch it on the, on the fabric um, and then see if I can hear it. And if you have, it was funny, I, I hunted with Cody Kellum um, up in Nevada. Um, oh, it's probably 16, 2016. And he had a, um, a binocular harness that was made out of Cordura. And I was like, dude, oh man, I was cringing. And he's <laughs> like, what? And because I mean, obviously Cody's got a ton of experience and he's, you know, primarily an elk hunter, but with elk hunting, you don't have to worry quite as much about the noise that you're making versus when you're stalking a mule deer in his bed and it's one o'clock in the afternoon and you, I mean, all you hear are like crickets and maybe a little bit of a, a breeze of wind blowing through the sagebrush. And, but I mean, it's basically dead silent and you could probably hear a, a gopher fart from a hundred yards. Um, <laughs> there's, you know, you have to be just dead quiet. And after his first stock, he comes back, he's like, okay, now I see what you mean. You know, cause it's like everything that you're using has got to be as absolutely quiet as possible. Um, even, you know, like you, if, if you've seen my videos, you've seen me take my pants off more than once during stocks. And that's, generally when I'm having to push through some brush or willows, you know, on that last little bit to get in on a buck. And it doesn't matter what the fabric is, how quiet it is, um, unless it's like polar fleece or just straight wool, like wool uh, long johns, it's going to make some noise. And I found that, um, you know, branches sliding over my bare skin is quieter than, you know, any fabric that I've come across, like I said, except for polar fleece or maybe, you know, wool long johns. Um, so I'll take my pants off if I need to. Um, but what works a lot too is to, to have some really long tube socks. Um, and I'll put those on, you know, take my boots off, put on um, a pair or two of those over the top of my, my hiking socks. And then I'll roll those way up my, my legs so that I'm not getting, you know, any uh, loose fabric on my pants that are going to be brushing together. Um, I'll cinch down my bino harness so that it's, it's not rustling. Um, Getting your binoculars in and out of your bino harness can sometimes be an issue. And I've, you know, left my binocular harness or right, my binoculars behind, you know, with my boots when I feel like um, I've got a harness that's too noisy or 
Um, I'm going through brush where I, I'm afraid that, you know, I'm just adding one more thing that can, the brush scraping against it can be a problem. And as much as I, you know, want to be able to have my binoculars um, with me on that last, you know, 30 to 50 yards of the stock, because they, they can be critical tools still, even at that distance. Uh, I just feel like the, the getting them in and out of your harness is um, too much of a, a detriment to, you know, making, making noise. So mm-hmm. yeah, everything needs to be as absolutely quiet as possible from a fabric standpoint. And if you're, you know, shooting stuff at 60 yards um, and that's going to be the distance that you figure that your average shot's going to be, then, then uh, a lot of the stuff I'm talking about is a moot point. But even if you're hunting with a compound, um, you know, because of where that buck is bedded, you might be forced to get sub 20 yards or you, that deer may get up and walk out of your life and never give you a shot opportunity. So there are times, even, you know, if you're shooting a, um, a compound and, and like I said, I used to hunt with one myself and, and, uh, my average shot distance was significantly further than it is with a stick bow. Um, but there were times when I shot stuff, you know, at really close distance with my compound and may not have been able to pull that off without having, uh, you know, fabrics that were just dead quiet. Yeah. What's the distance that you kind of, it sounds like obviously you're very aggressive. What's the distance that you like all of a sudden flip that switch and, you know, you're like, okay, I can't be aggressive at this point. It's, I've got to really, really slow down to yeah. where, you know, you're not accidentally kicking a rock or something like that. Is that 100 yards, 300 yards, 50 yards? Yeah, that's going to depend on what kind of, you know, how that buck is bedded. So if he's bedded at the base of some rim rock and I'm coming in from above, um, then uh, I might take my boots off 50 yards, you know, 30 yards, 40 yards above that buck because I know that I've got that um, that barrier uh, of that solid rock between he and I, that's going to help obscure any noise that I make. Um, also if it's windy, then I can, um, I can get away with a lot more than if it's that dead still, you know, middle of the day kind of situation. So, um, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on the conditions. If it's quiet and the deer is bedded behind some sagebrush, man, I might be 150 yards away and be in full sneak mode versus, you know, bedded up against the rim rock, um, where I, I know I've got something that I can rely on to help hide, uh, help cover noise and, and block noise and, and then be able to, you know, walk fully upright, right up to the edge of the rim rock and then, you know, lean out and get my shot. Okay. Yeah. So you're dropping pack, dropping boots. You mentioned the socks. Um, I love little tips like that. Do you ever use any of the, like, you know, the stocking shoes or other like over booties or anything like that, or just typically stick with an extra layer or two of socks? Um, I think with a compound that those would be, um, a lot, uh, a lot more applicable. Uh, I just feel like with, you know, for getting, for hunting with a stick bow, when, you're you're trying to get in super tight um that anything with a stiffer sole on it uh is going to be more likely to break a twig or crunch something that you don't want to have crunched um versus you know two or three pairs of socks for one you know obviously it's a a lot softer so it's going to help um make uh 
you know, it's going to help uh, give instead of snapping a twig. It'll help kind of flex around it. <clears throat> also, just by the nature of um, of having less protection for your feet, you're going to move slower and more carefully and pick your footing uh, with more discretion um, than you would if you had a pair of shoes on with, say, some of those Carlton sneaky feet or something like that. Um, you know, ag- again, with the compound, I would consider using those, but I, I usually shot my, th- my stuff, you know, my bucks with a compound, even in my socks. I mean, I could probably count on one hand, the number of bucks I've killed with, uh, with, um, boots on, um, versus, you know, I, I think I've shot close to 35 mule deer and, uh, and, you know, like I said, probably 30 of them were in socks. Any other on the on the gear side? I guess any other tips for being quiet? Are you modifying anything? I know it comes. You talked about gear selection and just looking at it, but are you modifying anything consistently? Are you doing anything to your bow? Uh, anything like that? Um, I'm I'm trying to um, you know get a, as quiet of a bow as I can. Um, you know, so I'll sacrifice some speed by putting in maybe an extra set of silencers on my string. Um, I'll, uh, a lot of times I'll, I'll put a, um, a fletching bonnet on my, on my arrows. And that's more so to keep my feathers from rustling than it is to worry about the bright colored fletchings that I have. Um, sometimes I'll, uh, I'll jam a, a branch or something into my, between my quiver and my bow to help break up my camouflage. Um, I will, Almost every time wear one of those shaggy hats as well as face camo to help break up my outline because a lot of times it's just my head that's going to be visible in my top bow limb. Um, so I'll try to everything I can to break up my human outline. And I'm virtually certain that that has enabled me to punch a, a number of tags, just helping, you know, having that extra, um, that extra uh, camouflage there for my head and face where I don't have the sharp edges, you know, of a human outline um, when I poke my head up and that, cause there, there's been times when I've missed deer on the first shot and the, the buck is, you know, jumped and, and, uh, and, but then doesn't know what's going on and is looking around or even looking back at me. And I've been able to execute a fatal second arrow. And I think that, um, you know, this, that extra camouflage form, um, and, and the face paint has helped make a difference. And, and I see guys, you know, put up posts on face camo or no face camo or like this and poo pooing the face camo, but man, I'm a, I'm a hundred percent sold on it myself. I feel like it's totally vital. Yeah. We had questions on just that. Like, what are your thoughts on concealment for a stock, certain camo patterns, leafy suit or hat, face paint, et cetera, which y'all just hit on. So that's good stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, a a full ghillie suit where practical would be like the ultimate. Um, But for backcountry stuff, it's just, you know, not as practical, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, as much as you're willing to carry in there from a camouflage perspective, as far as like a leafy or shaggy suit, I think would probably be beneficial. Mm. This might sound funny, but can you kind of break down your physical approach during a stock, meaning like, how are you walking? How are you stepping? Is that by feel, which I know you hit on with the socks, but 
is it also visible? So are you looking at every step and feeling um, just, yeah, like the nitty gritty on that physical approach? Um, you know, maybe when you lower your profile, pace, anything like that. Sure. So uh, that sounds like basically from the boots off time till the shot execution. Um, and again, that would come down to um, like when that deer is, is, uh, um, or where that deer is bedded. So against a rim rock, I'm, you know, I'm looking at what I'm stepping on. Um, and I may be looking like I'll take a glance at the ground and I'll map out my next three or four, two or three, four steps. Um, and then I'll make those steps and I'm usually covering those fairly quickly versus if I'm on ground level with a deer that, um, that I'm, you know, maybe using a rock between he and I for concealment or some bushes or something where there's no obstruction for sound, then I'm glancing at the ground every step. And then I'm glancing back up at the deer. Um, and hopefully I'm able to see, you know, the antler tines and using that to determine what the head position is. And I'm monitoring what direction his head is. And if it turns, then I'm going to hesitate and assume that that deer has picked up a noise and then I'm going to wait until, you know, I, uh, until he either turns back or I see some um, indication that he's relaxed so that if I did make a noise or maybe he picked up a little bit of movement, then uh, he's gone back to, you know, his kind of sleepy routine there sitting in his bed. Um, but basically every single step, I'm glancing at the ground and glancing back up at the deer um, so that I can uh, make sure I'm not going to step on something that's, you know, sharp and then is going to cause me to have to make an another quick step and put me off balance or step on something that's going to make some noise. Um, and I'll, I'll, I, I prefer to walk upright as much as I can, but you know, a lot of times you end up having to do a, um, you know, hands and knees or belly crawl or what, depending on what the cover, how the cover dictates it. Um, I stocked up on, I had one buck in particular, I think it was 2014 that, um, that had bedded. It was, there was actually, there's probably four bucks that were in this group and they had bedded out on this, um, on this ridge. And there was a couple little rock piles and some dead snags. He was bedded up against a bush. And looking at him from above, it looked like there was no possible approach. And there's so many times that I've looked at deer and and just thought to myself, oh, yeah, there's no way. I mean, I, I'll watch him to see if he gets up and rebeds, but there's no way. But then, you you know, with nothing better to do, you just start looking and you look at everything between you and the deer and you look at what's around the deer. And then you can start, you know, looking. It's like, oh, OK, that rock that should provide a little bit of cover if I can get to that rock. And then you start looking at, okay, well, how can I get to that rock? And then you, you know, work your way back from where the deer is back to where you are. And there's a lot of times when I've initially thought that there's no way in hell that you'd be able to get in on a buck. And then through careful scrutiny, um, you pick up enough, terrain features and micro topography and that you're able to to formulate a plan and um 
in this particular instance, I had, you know, again, it was one of those situations where it's like, okay, there's a, you know, there's my marker rock. I'll look for that. And, uh, and been able to, you know, get down in on there. And then I almost overran, you know, my marker was like 50 yards from the deer. And I figured I'd be able to pick up that marker rock from a hundred yards. Well, I picked it up from about 10 yards and I still had my boots on and that deer was on my level. And I got super lucky that I didn't bump him out, but I was able to get in to, oh, it was like 12 or 14 yards of this buck. And I had to, there was a, you know, a couple of spoilers, um, smaller deer that were in the vicinity of that bedded buck that I had to work around. So it was really a complex, you know, technical stock, but I was able to get in on ground level to this deer. It was like 12 or 14 yards. And I had a, a little gap between two rocks, you know, using one rock to block his head. And I was able to lean out and shoot in this little V notch and, and I was able to put an arrow right through him. And we got that on video, you know, from a GoPro angle, as well as from a perspective from above. And so I made for some pretty cool footage because from above, it looks like I'm just walking in plain sight of this deer. But then from the GoPro angle, you're able to see, you know, what I'm doing. And, and I, you know, there's a, I don't, I should probably try to do more of an educational stance on the videos that I do just to answer a lot of these questions. But I think that viewers can pick up, you know, intuitively a lot from what I'm, I'm doing just by watching. Uh, have you guys seen the, the, the two DVDs that I've put out? No, I was just thinking that when you, you know, you mentioned GoPro early on, um, but then mm-hmm. the way you just explained it, I thought, man, what a what a valuable tool to kind of be having your perspective and in the moment and seeing how you're executing. So I'm super interested in like going at it from that perspective. I've seen some of your videos for sure. And just from an entertainment perspective, fascinating stuff, but to like sit down and, you know, almost study it, if you will, with that first person perspective, uh, I'm super interested in doing that now. I haven't watched any of the DVDs other than, yeah, full draw film tour videos over the years, but all right, we'll have to send a couple of them out to you guys, but the, uh, the GoPro stuff, um, from a editing standpoint can be a bit of a nightmare because, you know, those wide angles on that GoPro just shows everything. And, and, uh, you know, I try to be pretty secretive about where I'm hunting. So they're a little bit more limited in, uh, in scope as far as, you know, how much of that content actually, uh, makes it off the editing room floor and into the, into the, uh, final finished product. But there are, you know, there's enough of it that you can kind of see what I'm doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, there, there's it. It is pretty valuable um, to do, and you know, a lot of it's cropped down. And I'm going to be playing with a new one this year, shooting in 4K, so it ought to allow you know more latitude for cropping and still have high quality images. You know that that. Uh, so I'm hoping to be able to use more of that in the future as we move forward. Yeah, nice. So you you talked about obviously looking at your step and kind of the path part of it and then being focused on the deer and reading, you know, that buck's behavior. What about scanning? You mentioned the spoiler bucks, right? So obviously mm-hmm. as you look at the approach, whether that's from your glassing point or just as you're getting closer, you're, you're keeping an eye on those things or what other deer around and all that. But during the stock, how aware of you intentionally aware of the surroundings are you, or is it more just, you know, your step in the buck and kind of that direct path. Yeah. I tell you, I have that, you know, you asked me earlier, 
what um, I think it was, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, but something to the effect of things that, that uh, ruin their stocks. And I said wind. Well, spoiler bucks are probably actually what has what has caused me more headache is uh, is deer because a lot of times you can determine oh okay the wind isn't going to be right for that stock so I won't even attempt it um, but the but other deer have been so problematic for me um, because of all the tendency to get tunnel vision when I get in and I, I won't be keeping my head on a swivel as much as I should and sometimes they're bucks that I hadn't seen before but more often than not they're deer that I was aware of. But you're having to work past in order to get, you know, to a, a shot or a, a location where you can get a shot. And uh, the spoiler deer are um, are really challenging to work around, or can be really challenging to work around because you're trying to, um, you know, keep uh, tabs on multiple sets of eyes and and still move and close the distance and they can they can really be a challenge so mm. that's one thing for sure you know if you're going to take away anything from this is uh you know once you once you get in tight and and you're starting to get to where you're exposing yourself is keep an eye out and keep you know because i've also had other deer while i'm in tight on on uh bucks you know other deer that that uh may have gotten pushed out of their beds by, you know, the, the sun, um, getting too warm. And so they get up out of their morning bed and then they come over, um, and, you know, join the deer that you're stalking. And, and, uh, so that can really create a problem. So continuing, continuing to use your binoculars to glass for other deer or keep tabs on the one ones that are surrounding the, the your target there is, is real important for sure. Yeah, there's so much going on in that stock, you know, with the target buck and terrain and other um, other deer around. There was multiple questions um, from our audience on basically your mindset during the stock, I guess, you know, in addition to all the things we just discussed. But, you know, some of the questions were, do you have an internal mantra? Uh, another question was, do you have a mental checklist that you run through um, during a stock? So beyond the things we, we just hit on, um, anything else that comes to mind in terms of that? kind of that mind game, if you will, during the stock? Um, I try to keep my myself relatively calm, as particularly as I'm closing in. Um, and some people do that by thinking negative thoughts. Or, you know, um, I think I've heard, you know, when I was cutting my teeth, I think I remember Chuck Adams talking about that, about, you know, basically thinking you know, to himself, that was his technique was to like, oh, they're, you know, the buck's not going to get there or not going to be there when I get there. And, you know, like this. Um, and that was what worked for him. Um, for me, I, I, I try to focus on what I need to do and what is within my control. Um, not think about um, the shot itself so much. I mean, I, I've, I've screwed up every way possible. And, you know, thinking about what my buddies are going to think when I tag this huge buck, you know, before I've even drawn my bow back and then just fallen apart at that opportunity, you know, when, when I get back to full draw, then I get in my head. And so I try to just to focus on what I've got ahead of me. I try to focus on my breathing, 
Um, cause if you're, if you start getting excited and, and you kind of let that excitement continue to build and you, you let that, um, pressure, um, and you're thinking about the shot and you're thinking about all these things rather than focusing on your breathing and calming yourself down, um, then a lot, a lot of times things can escalate so much that buck fever compounds it. And then your, your heart's racing. And then all you're thinking about is getting that arrow off the string. Cause you just want to get that moment over. And, uh, so I'll try to focus really on a lot on my breathing and then calming my heart rate down. Even if I've got to think about something that is completely different than what I'm doing on the side of that mountain. If I've got to um, focus my, my thoughts on work or something or an, um, an order that I didn't get out or, you know, or whatever it is that I can distract myself from temporarily just to bring my heart rate and my breathing rate down so that I, cause I want everything. I want myself as calm as possible when, um, when a time comes time for that shot execution. And it's pretty easy, you know, when you have, um, a whole bunch of deer right in front of you to get yourself pretty wound up. And one of my favorite hunts that I've been on um, was Nevada or no Colorado 2017 and Wes Smith um, from born and raised formerly from born and raised was, was uh, filming for me. And, and it was like the last day before we had to pack out. And the two guys that I was hunting with, that were hunting with compounds that already both tagged out and both shot nice bucks. And, and so like, you can't build the pressure any more than we had at that day. It was like, we had already hunted a morning hunt. It was Friday. We were packing out Saturday and, um, the, and to, to, to boot one of the coolest bucks that we had seen to this, the trip of this old regressed buck by far, not the biggest buck of the trip, but one that was, uh, just a massive body on him. And he, he had stubby forks, but he had, um, inline, uh, points that came off the back of his main beams and he had um, matching kickers on both sides and none of these kickers were very long you know they were maybe a, two inches long or so and then the inlines that came off the back of his main beams weren't very long and his forks weren't very deep but it was like this buck had just tons of character well he was in this group and um there was, I want to say there was 11 bucks that were bedded like in this donut of willows. And, uh, they were bedded in the middle, in the middle of these, uh, um, willows where there was this opening, but I had to go through the willows to get to them. And, um, I had to, I dropped my pants, pushed through these willows and I'm, you know, my head's on a swivel as I'm, looking you know trying to keep track of all these bucks because i could literally see i had one up above me and i uh, um a, you know a little bit out from me and above me i had two that were bedded down below me i had um several more that were slightly below me and further out into the willows um or the the middle of the donut of uh of the willows and so it was the classic um where you just couldn't keep track of everything. And it was almost like overwhelming trying to, um, each step I was like having to, to look at five or six different bucks to see which direction their heads were, were facing. And then just as I was, um, trying to get settled in for a shot at that buck that was slightly above me, um, 
he was behind a jack pine and he was up feeding and I needed him to take like two more steps to, uh, to come out. And all of a sudden that big old regressed buck stood up and he was like 15 yards right b- below me. No, no, I'm sorry. There was, he, he had gotten up and he was working his way up towards me, angling towards me. And there was another buck that was directly below me, but, um, he started working towards me. And then I was like, Oh man, I shift my attention towards him. And it was about a 15 or 20, about a 20 yard shot. And I drew back shot. And, uh, he, like I said, he was slightly quartering into me, but I figured I could slip an arrow right behind his shoulder and then still, you know, get the goodies there. Um, but I shot wide left and my arrow glanced off his hind leg and the buck, you know, bolted and ran closer towards me. I ducked down behind the willows, got another arrow knocked, drew my bow and then stood back up and he's broadside to me at about 15 yards. And I literally, it's interesting, you know, and these are all the good learning experience here um, or a good bit of advice for people. I had to, it looked like, um, cause I could just see the top of this buck's back and I had willows between he and I. Um, and, but I knew that the arc of my arrow, even, you know, over that short distance would carry it over the willows, but I had to uh, basically put my point, you know, from where I was, my perspective, where I was looking in the willows and shoot and the arrow arced over the top of the willows and dropped in on them. Um, and I just smoked them, shot them right through both lungs. And I mean, the whole hillside erupted and we had, uh, you know, bucks running everywhere. And Wes was across the Canyon video and me, and I had the GoPro going and I mean, it was just a, it was an awesome situation because of, you know, everything came together. I had a, you know, a really cool hunt. I had multiple stock opportunities. My buddies had tagged out, they had left. You had, you know, the, the feeling of camaraderie in camp where you have a big camp and a bunch of people and we're all visiting and having a great old time. And I only get to see these guys, you know, once a year. And then, you know, one guy leaves when he tags out then the next guy leaves when he tags out. And then pretty soon it's just Wes and I, and we're feeling like, you know, all the pressure of the end of the hunt coming and you, then you have, it's middle of the last full day of your hunt and you've already, you know, cleared out all the basins around you. You know that you're down to your all, you know, virtually your last possible opportunity. You have the coolest buck on the mountain, the one that you wanted to shoot the whole week. You have, you know, you see so you're managing all these emotions as you're going in on that, on that last bit of that stock. And so to be able to control, you know, yourself, so that you can make that shot execution and be able to recover on that miss. Um, Cause that alone, you know, when you met typically when I shoot a deer and I get an arrow in it, man, the wheels fall off and I, I'll get multiple shot opportunities. Like I said, you know, with my stick bow and I've usually, usually after the first one, you know, I'll try to, if I've made a good shot on a deer or, a, you know, less than good shot, I'm going to shoot until that deer's out of range or I don't have any ammo left in my quiver. And there's been multiple times I carry an extra broadhead stuffed into my quiver when I've actually ha- shot all my broadheads and I take my blunt and unscrew my blunt and then screw my extra broadhead into my arrow and then shoot that last 
you know, arrow at him, that last broadhead. And, and last year I had that situation happen with me um, where, you know, I made a fatal shot, but it wasn't immediately fatal on a buck. And then I shot at him three more times, you know, blowing through the rest of my broadheads and my quiver. And then it's like, okay, dude, calm down, you know, grab that last broadhead, <laughs> unscrew the broadhead, put, you know, or unscrew the blunt, screw the broadhead on. It's like, okay, this is your last chance. I mean, the deer was going to die, but it was a liver shot. And so then I, you know, calm down, execute a good shot and then shot him through both lungs and, and then, uh, you know, put him down. But, um, managing your emotions and through those shot that that shot what you whatever you can do whatever you can come up with to uh, to help bring your heart rate and bring your breathing down is going to help you kind of manage and think more clearly when that you know that moment of truth comes. Yeah, man, so good. Yeah, awesome I could uh, I could ask you questions and listen to you tell stories all day. Just one more practical one I want to hit real quick if we can, just because it was a. Uh, a listener question that came in and I thought it was a good one. A lot of guys are probably thinking about for you South, this has probably maybe changed a bit from your compound days to your current trad days. And you can speak to both, but during the stalk, how and when are you ranging the deer? Um, so I don't use a range finder with my trad bow and, um, it would probably, because I gap shoot, um, it would be smart for me to use it, but I just haven't been able to overcome um, and I, and I don't judge anybody else for what their equipment is, whether they shoot a compound, their stick bow, a metal riser, stick bow, a stick bow with a stabilizer, you know, if they saw a stick bow with a release, I wouldn't think anything about it. There are guys that I know that gap shoot with their stick bow and use a range finder. Um, it's just personally for me, it's like, um, there are a lot of States where you can use radios, uh, when you're, when you're, um, you know, for, uh, guiding your hunter in on, on mule deer. And, uh, I don't even know, it may be legal in Colorado. I'm not sure. Um, but personally for my, and I, and I don't know that ethics is the right word, but my personal preference, uh, for hunting mule deer is, um, I want to do it without the use of a radio. Cause I feel like that makes it more challenging and, uh, and I'll use a hunting partner with hand signals. Um, but, and, and again, I, when I shot a compound, I absolutely use a range finder, but with my stick bow, I don't use one. Um, but if you go back to my compound days, when I did use a range finder, then that range finder was up constantly in use as soon as I could see the deer, then I was ranging stuff. I was ranging from me to the deer. Okay. I'm out of my range. Okay. Then I range from me to a different object between me and the deer. And, and then I'll do the math and figure out, okay, if I get to that object, then I'll be so far such and such a distance from that deer. Um, so I'm, uh, when I was shooting a compound, I used it constantly. And, uh, you know, I basically, it was in my right hand. I had an arrow knocked as soon as I was near my shooting range. And then I was constantly monitoring distances and okay, if that deer gets up out of his bed, is he going to be obstructed as soon as he stands up? And if he is obstructed and he walks this direction and he's, you know, then what distance is he going to be as soon as he gives me the earliest shot opportunity? So I think it's important, you know, when you're utilizing an aiming system where you are, 
you know, needing a, a known range to absolutely, um, you know, use that range finder as much as you can. It's you're packing it around. Definitely use it. Man, I appreciate the time South, but you know, it's, it's one of those things I personally don't take for granted and I hope listeners don't too. Just someone like yourself who, you know, decades of experience, uh, you know, has put in time to learn the lessons that you're, uh, willing to share some of that with us. So I really thank you for it. Um, I know you mentioned up front stalker stick bows and YouTube and all that, but just kind of recap resources that guys can go check out uh, the place they can get the DVDs, that type of thing. Yeah. So um, if you go to the stalker stick bows store on my website, so stalkerstickbows.com and then go to the stalker shop, then uh, the videos are available um, in a two pack uh, with a discount there. The new one that I did, you know, it was a, couple years ago that i finished it it was it's a um dvd and thumb drive combo so the dvd is standard def the thumb drive is high def um and then the original stalkers in the backcountry dvd is uh standard def and um, both of them are hunts in nevada and colorado there's uh each dvd has five successful um hunts and um so it's 30 bucks for the twin pack of those two. And then I, since the time that I finished that second DVD, everything that I've done now from the video standpoint is just going directly to my YouTube channel. So stalker stick bows on YouTube. And then, uh, you know, you search that and then you'll see all the, the later stuff. And the first one, um, you know, it's, it, it'll be fun, you know, from a viewer standpoint, just to see the progression of, uh, you know, the early cameras that I was using in the video editing and, and, um, the video quality content, you'll be able to see that progression. Um, and there's a lot of stocks, blown shots. I show everything. I don't, you know, I don't, uh, I'm not prideful. If I, you know, blow a stock or miss a shot, I don't edit it out. You're going to see all that. So there's literally, I think it's the first hunt on the first DVD, um, nine day hunt. I killed a buck on the eighth day and I think I missed five times. <laughs> so <Wow. laughs> yeah, you know, you really get your money's worth from a viewer standpoint and, and, uh, and you can see, you know, my jovial, um, personality in the beginning and then the, the, you know, eight days of hunting and the frustration and just like, um, the feeling of futility and like, man, is this even possible to do this with a stick bow? So mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's fun to kind of, to watch those. And there's a lot of learning, um, opportunities that are available. If somebody is interested in getting into hunting mule deer, I think you'll pick up on a lot. And then I also, I think that, you know, you'd be remiss if you didn't watch that, um, that original Larry Jones, video um and man i uh, i think it's point blank calls now um who owns the the rights to that video and they they sell it on their website and then another resource that's fantastic is dwight shoe's book hunting open country mule deer and it was written um back in the late 80s and so there's sections of it that you know for scouting and stuff that are a little outdated um, still relevant in some respects, but you know, there's not Google earth and all that stuff back then. Um, but there's, I mean, I use that as a Bible, um, 
when I started mule deer hunting and it really uh, surged me forward and saved me years and years of uh, frustration. So that book by Dwight Shue, I definitely recommend as well. Well, that's a wrap. South just mentioned some great resources there that you should go check out if you want to learn more about hunting mule deer. We also have more to come in this How to Hunt Mule Deer series, so be sure to hit that subscribe button and tune back in for future episodes. As always, you can contact us via email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. Send us your questions or topic suggestions for the show. We would love to hear from you. Hope to talk to you soon.